kureo ki te hiku o te ika, ki te hiku o te rangi, ki runga rawa e. Tātou katoa e pai nei, tēnā tātou. E toro atu nei te reo whakamanawa, ki tēnā, ki tēnā o koutou. E hūtiake rā i te māhanahanatanga o o koutou whare. Whakawhaiti mai ai ki konei, ki raro i ngā tāwharautanga o tō tātou whare e tū atu nei, e mihi nei ki a tātou, tēnā tātou. Nau mai haere mai ki tēnei whare te puna mātauranga o Aotearoa. Nā kū te whiwhinga, nā kua nō te maringa nui, kia mihi atu kia koutou te marea. Ngā mihi hoki ki tō tātou manuhiri tuārangi, e hara mai nei, e whakatau mai nei, me ōna whakapapa, me ōna tini aitua, me ngā mate huhua o te wā. Tēnā koe. It is always my pleasure and a privilege to welcome everyone into Te Puna Mātauranga o Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. We are honoured to host this event and to provide a space that allows us all to tell our stories, to create change and to share our future visions. There is a whakatauki that says, Ko tāwhitike tō haerenga atu, kia kore e haere tonu. He tino nui rawa o mahi, kia kore e mahi nui tonu. We've come too far not to go further, and we've done too much not to do more. We hope that when you leave tonight, you will want to go further, and you will find the courage to do more. Nō reira e te maria, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tai āwhio ki te whare, tēnā tātou katoa. On behalf of Verb Wellington, I'd just like to say how happy we are to be a part of this event and to help put it on. Um, it's come about through a lot of work behind the scenes, a huge amount of work, uh, in particular thanks to Rachel King at Word Christchurch and Amnesty International. I'd also like to thank the Park Hotel who have provided accommodation and last but not least uh, the National Library of New Zealand, where we are now, um, for hosting us in this uh, fantastic space. Right, so I'd like to welcome, uh, she's going to explain a little bit more about how this event came about. Please welcome Rachel King. There's nothing like a health and safety announcement to relax us into the event. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Rachel King ahau, he mihi tēne no tira o kupu no o tūtahi. He mihi hoki, ki te mana whenua, o te rua nei, ki a te atiawa, taranaki whanui, tēnā koutou. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Thanks everyone for coming. Thanks to Claire and Andy at Verb for joining together to present this event as a word-verb, word-verb-verb-word collaboration on their patch. We love working with Verb. We have a saying in our relation to our partnership with Naitahu in Christchurch, Maurika Arohua Kaputa, with many hands, great things can be achieved. Our partnership with Verb and the friendship between our organisations is very important to us, and I'm just sorry that Claire maybe couldn't be here. Um, thanks so much to Amnesty International for being instrumental in Beru's visit, 
um, and uh, thank you to Moana for the welcome and a personal thanks from me to Zoe Rowland of the National Library. Um, I want to make a particular welcome to Janet Galbraith, <laughs> she's making faces at me now, um, Beiruza's close friend and founder of Writing Through the Fences in Australia. Um, we've had a whole contingent of the Australian literary community with us this past week, which has been fantastic, um, including writer Arnold Zabel um, and Beiruza's first translator, uh, Munis Mansubi, as well as Beiruza's agent and publisher who came over from Australia for the event on Friday. Um, and of course, most importantly, we want to thank Badu's Bouchani for making the journey to be with us here today. Uh, Lloyd-Jones is your host for tonight, and I will leave him to introduce Badu's properly. Um, but I'd just like to say that this all began over coffee at Florida's. Um, it was a typical um, windy Wellington day, and I missed the bus because it came early, not late. <laughs> um, which is apparently quite common these days, I hear. Um, Lloyd suggested that I invite Beirut to our festival. Um, now, I'd read Lloyd's book, The Cage, obviously, and so I knew he had a particularly, an particular interest in the way refugees are treated worldwide. And I'd followed some of Beirut's journalism, and I'd heard of and very much enjoyed the fact that his book, No Friend But The Mountains, had won Australia's richest literary prize, despite his never setting foot in Australia. Um, Richard Flanagan refers to Beirut as a great Australian writer. So, of course, here was someone who we wanted to invite to Christchurch to speak, and I thought it most likely impossible. After all, I was pretty sure that he didn't have a passport for a start. Lloyd said to me, let's just give it a go. So we gave it a go. Um, and with time and the help of other organisations and individuals, Badrus Bouchani, the great Kurdish writer, is here with us today. It became very clear... Um, early on that this was a story that was going to be bigger than the literary community and that we needed a huge venue to stage his event in Christchurch and John Campbell to host it. But Lloyd and I had talked about how important this story is for the literary community and how wonderful it would be to host a smaller event with Beirut in front of writers and book lovers with one writer in conversation with another. And that's why we decided to bring this event to Wellington and to keep it small and intimate. And when I mentioned to Lloyd a couple of weeks ago that I'd thought that bringing Beirut was going to be an impossible task, he said to me, you should never think anything is impossible. That's not how you get things done. So I'm actually going to get that tattooed on my arm. Um, but now will you please join me in welcoming your host Lloyd-Jones and the wonderful Beirut Bouchani. Good things begin with modest, minor little things like that, that's for sure. Um, look, I'm really thrilled. Uh, it's very odd wearing these glasses. I can't see you, but I, I can see my text, so I have to make a choice here. Uh, I'm pleased we're meeting here at the National Library um, in a place where words matter, a place committed to preserving language and story testimony, a place where barriers are broken down. We know this as readers because reading offers the most magical of all transactions. When we read, the existence of other is dismantled and transmuted into our own experience. If we commit ourselves to reading, no friend but the mountains, we may know what it was like to have been Beirut's Bachani on Manus Island. If you have not read Beirut's book, you may think you know the word refugee. You will know, as the Oxford Dictionary tells us, a refugee as a person who has been forced to leave their country or home because there is a war or political, religious or social reasons. 
but that definition is insufficient. It describes only one moment, the initial stage, that one turns from a human being into a person into flight. It fails to elaborate or expand on the existential condition of being a refugee. What we now know, thanks to no friend but the mountains, is that the word refugee dispossesses. Beruza's book takes us to a place that none of us would want to spend any time in. If we did, we would think a great injustice had been done to ourselves for what we had done to be thrust into the situation. What we had done was to flee one place because it had become untenable, to head for a, a place that we thought would offer refuge. If we were guilty of a crime, it was to try and save ourselves. And in exercising that very basic human instinct, we may find ourselves intercepted, fished out of the sea, in Beruza's case, and thereafter treated as a criminal, sent to Christmas Island initially, and then on to Manus Island. What else do we know about Beruza's story? A prison regime may try to strip you of everything. Possessions, hopes, asylum, dignity, agency, freedom. What you are left with, however, is the capacity to witness your fate. And that is the place from which this book is written. As a reader, No Friend But the Mountains challenges us to find the right response to the book. Is it right to say, I enjoyed it, or that I found it compelling? Those words belong to a different critical space. As a reader, I became a refugee. As a refugee, I discovered I had no rights. I discovered I was no longer viewed as a human being, but as a problem, a bureaucratic problem. All thanks to a cell phone, it meant the caged bird could sing. And it did, it sang, and it produced this book, No Friend But The Mountains, which we'll talk about in a moment. But last night, I saw Beruz on Simon Koenian's film, Stop the Boats. I don't know if people here have seen that, boat, uh, seen that film. And Beruz was seated on a plastic chair inside the prison, um, looking at a, a, uh, a wire fence. And now, remarkably, here he is tonight. And we're very pleased to have you here, Beruz. So please, another warm welcome. I thought I would begin by reading a passage to you all by Antonio Gramsci, the Italian writer and polit political philosopher. And Gramsci, he was, he was in prison. He spent six years in prison for his political views. And after he was released, um, he wrote a letter to his wife. And he wrote, what a terrifying experience it was to look out from the train after six years of seeing nothing but those roofs and walls those surly faces, and to realise that the vast world had gone on existing with its meadows and woods and ordinary people, its flocks of boys and girls, its particular trees and vegetable gardens. I thought that might resonate with you. Uh, I'm wondering what it felt like when you, when you left Manus Prison, when you walked out the gates for the last time. Yeah, <coughs> I would like to say hello. Uh, Actually, the first day, uh, the first time, so, you know, I should talk about the airport. So in the airport, when I arrived uh, 
uh, in Manus, so it was a small airport I described in the book. So many people were there and many uh, guards and many local people who were working for the company. So I put my feet in Manus Island by this that they call me MEG 045, so my number. And the last day I left Manus, so the airport was very busy, many people were there and they were waiting for us. The last day that I left Manus and I went to Port Mosby, uh, we were 14 people and only two people were in the airport. So no one was in the airport. And when I put my feet, I remember that imagine the first day I arrived in Manus. When I put my feet in the you know, plane, the person there, he told me that, oh, you are that Berus Buchani who wrote the book? And I said, yes. And when I sit in the plane, I was thinking and actually I compared these two pictures that the first day I arrived in Manus uh, I was MEG 045 and the last day it was I got my identity back and so it was very interesting for me <laughs> when I compare this so I want to use this uh, you know pictures just to say that all of these works that I have done or other people, uh, we should understand it in a political context. And all of them are struggle just to keep my identity or keep my dignity and individuality. So I think we should understand all of these works in any language, in journalism or even the political activities or uh, you know, working with the lawyers, challenge the system in the courts in Australia or in Port Mosby or literature. All of these works are for this, just to show and say and prove that we are human. Yeah, so I understand all of this battle in this way. The number, uh, is that the number of the boat? Uh, no, uh, all of the people in, I mean my boat mates, we were MEG. So MEG 1, MEG 2, MEG 3, it was like this, yeah. So the children in Nauru are still referred to. Can you not hear? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm off. Okay. Barus, are you? I am off. <laughs> You're on. So oh, yeah, okay. Now I'm on. Now? <laughs> I'll just hold it, Rich. Yeah. Um, no, the reason I, I uh, want to mention the numbers, um, uh, there was a thing that came up in the Australian Parliament about the children in Nauru are still referred to by numbers rather than their names. Terribly dehumanising uh, thing, really. Um, look, there's another reason why I wanted to mention um, Gramsci. 
as, as, a, as a political philosopher, um, he maintained that um, the role of intellectuals was more than to create works of art or, or to write or have interesting conversations. He believed that uh, intellectual activity had a, had a role in shaping society and being kind of activist-minded. And it, occur it occurs to me in, in reading the book, um, well, first of all, let's talk about what the kind of work you were doing um, in Tehran. You were a, an activist journalist. But do you understand what I'm saying about the, the intellectual pursuit of wanting change and, and resisting and, and so on? Um, was that a big part of your, your makeup before you... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, always I work to create change. So in Iran... So in Iran, I was uh, facing a different problem. So I was born in Ilam. So I was born in war. So at that time, there was a big war between Iran and Iraq, but on Kurdistan land. So the ground was in Kurdistan. So I was born in that place and, uh, you know, uh, in whole my life, just I was uh, trying, I was fighting to create change in that small place in Ilam, which is a part of Kurdistan, but unfortunately in that part of Kurdistan, uh, people actually lost their identity. So since 10 years ago, 15 years ago, suddenly people of this city decided to forget about Kurdish language and they started to speak with their children, with the young generation in Farsi. And that was, you know, unacceptable. And we, I and some of the friends and other activists, we started to educate these people that you should keep this language alive. You are Kurdish, you know? And we didn't have media. It was a dictatorship system. So one of the works that I did, it was just, you know, sometimes go to mountains with the young people and try to just talk with them in person and educate them. So we were like homeless, uh, like, Philosopher, <laughs> yeah, just anyone that you know, they're just in the bus everywhere. When I s hear that people are speaking their children, you know, I, you know, I had a package, you know, uh, of my thinking just in few sentences. Yeah, yeah, you should speak with these children. You should speak in Kurdish. Understand? No, why you should speak? Yeah, you should do it because of this, because of this, you know. So our work was like this, and educate people, and help them and to how to write in Kurdish, how to uh, speak in Kurdish. So, but recently, really, we were, you know, uh, became quite crazy, you know, because we didn't have media, so we couldn't speak with people directly. So media, you didn't. Yeah, we didn't have newspaper, but in the last year, so according to the law, uh, if you want uh, to...
publish uh, like a magazine or a newspaper in Kurdish, you, c you, you cannot in Iran. A part of it should be in Farsi. And they give permission, you should get permission from the government. So it was so difficult because Kurdish language is not a formal language in Iran. So we were fighting in this way and finally, so all of those works ended up in this, that I had to leave Iran. You know, I had to leave Iran and I went, so I ended up in Manus. You know, what I want to say is that, you know, in all my life, <coughs> I have been, uh, you know, engaged with this concept, identity. Mm, right. And when I arrived in Australia, they sent me to Manus and they actually put me through a different system. Mm. Um, so a colonialization mm. system. We'll come, yeah. we'll, come, we'll come to that. that most people here would be confused um, or surprised to hear that you say you've been to Australia. But in fact, uh, Christmas Island is a kind of a colonial outpost, isn't it? And then when you, when you arrive at Christmas Island, you receive a gift from the Australian government. You want to tell everybody what that was? Ah, uh, yes. So... Uh, Christmas Island is belong to Australia, so I don't know the history of that island. But uh, of course, it, it is a part of Australian territory. Um, so when I arrived in uh, Christmas Island, actually they catch us, they took us from the water. So yeah, nothing. Just they put gave me <laughs> to. Uh, pair of flip flops. Yeah, yeah, mm. and I had them to for six years. Baruz mm. was <laughs> he was in bare feet and uh, pair of jeans and a t-shirt, but also a book of poetry by a Kurdish poet uh, with the title. It's called in English. It's fear of being a labourer again in the afterlife. I love that. <laughs> um, and he's a friend of yours, and that was the last book you bought uh, before you. Uh, yeah, that book is uh, for my friend uh, Sabir Haka. So Sabir Haka is a poet. He's quite well known in Iran right now in literature community. So the last day I left Iran, he, uh, you know, his book just was released. So he just signed it and gave it to me. So it was with me. And but necessarily it was, you know, I kept that, but it was not that I like his works, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I kept it. Of course I liked some of his works. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Saber was uh Saber was a uh, Actually, he left his uh, he left the school because of uh, poverty. So and he started to work as a simple worker and he was homeless. He had a very hard life, but he started to he engaged with uh, literature and finally so very long story. Mm. But 
I want to say something about Sabir. That Sabir for me is like a symbol of uh, Kurdish, uh, you know, intelligent people. Because in Kurdistan is different. So the intelligent people, you know, I created this term. I said shepherd philosopher or worker philosopher. We have mm, uh, actually many people like Sabir that, you know, in your countries, you know, your writers, you know, just you have office, just work and, you know, uh, you have a different lifestyle and write, but in Kurdistan it's not like this. The intelligent people are like Sabir, or they engage with Kurdistan political movement, and many of our writers and poets actually are in the mountains and they are fighting. <laughs> you know, they are uh, a part of guerrilla. You know, so when you look at these people, you cannot believe that they are writers, poets, or they are fighters. You know, so and that's why the leader of Kurdistan, you know, the, uh, political leaders, they are philosophers, you know, for example, you know, Abdullah Ocalan, he is in the prison in uh, Turkey for 20 years, so he published many books, you know, many books, and he created the alternative philosophy, but I should mention this, I'm not agree with him. <laughs> While he was in prison. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean that, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean that, uh, yeah, yeah, with uh, his philosophy. I mean that uh, in Kurdistan is like this. So what I did, actually, when I arrived in Manus, uh, I used this resistance culture in Kurdistan, you know, for my works, you know for my works and I use this uh, resistant element and use it in manus, you know. And sometimes when I look at past, I say if there I was not a Kurdish, I couldn't you know, challenge this system. Right. Because that needed some, uh, some elements, really, uh, that is not only about art or literature, you know. You had to be, I don't want to use brave word, uh, something, yeah, brave, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, is brave or, or thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or crazy, I don't know, but well, anything yeah. that I used yeah. came from the Kurdistan resistance. Yeah. You know, I think that's what I was trying to draw out. Yeah, yeah because you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know myself. I say that many times because people put me in this category that you are brave. I say, no, I'm not a brave person, you know. But uh, I use that culture, you know, which is a historical culture and it is a part of uh, Kurdistan movement. And I raised this question in the book, mm. you know. Yeah. I think you are pretty brave, and we'll, we'll later we'll come to an instance where I think that uh, you show considerable bravery. But um, I should have asked this a little bit earlier. Um, 
what did you think Australia was? What, what sort of place was Australia, your destination? What, what kind of place was it in your mind? What did you imagine? Uh, when I was in Manus or when I was in... Before you got yeah. to Manus, on, you're on your way, you're making your I way to this place. Actually, Australia. you know, uh, I didn't have time to think about Australia. Mm. You know, I had to leave Iran, so someone introduced uh, me to a, a smuggler. So I met him in a park and he told me that, you know, I said you should send me, help me to leave Iran. And I expected that he sent me to Europe, but he sent me to, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I didn't have time. You so thought, that's you thought, why you're, you're, you thought you were on your way to Paris and you ended up in uh, No, no, no. I, I mean that I didn't uh, have time to think about it, yeah. to have a plan or do a research about Australia and, uh, you know, yeah. Australian culture, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so I ended up in Australia, in Christmas Island. Yes. So this but but also, uh, as we were discussing earlier, um, within the processing centre, which you have renamed PRISM, um, in a way you were encountering with an expression of Australian culture, an expression of Australian values within the prison camp. Yeah, I think before I talk about this, I should talk about my imagination about Australia in Manus. Because for years and years, I had to think about Australia, look at Australian politics, try to understand this mentality that created this, you know? And I still have this question that which kind of culture is, which kind of history, uh, this nation has, which kind of people are that still, after more than six years, many politicians, you know, yesterday they did in the parliament, they gathered together many media and they are talking about 200 sick people. Mm -hmm. And they are, they are having this negotiation that we should let these sick people to get medical treatment or not. That's right, yeah. And which kind of nation is mm. that more than 40% of uh, people, they said we should don't let these people to get medical treatment, right. you know? It is a big question for me before I think about shame or this kind of thing. It is a big question, and still I have this question with myself. So for years and years, I was looking at Australia and thinking ab about Australia, but... You know, I published articles, you know, political articles. I know that Australia is a country with 25 million population. But I had this imagination about Australia. I imagined Australia as a few cities, desert, few cities, Sydney, two, only two streets, <laughs> Melbourne, only two seat, mm. street or one street, one street yeah. and Brisbane half street <laughs> <laughs> and a parliament mm -hmm. and some newspapers office and I just I knew you know those journalists I was working with them in their in the office they are doing this and Janet, Arnold, and some people. Just, I imagined Australia like this for mm. years and years. Mm. And actually, I look at Australia as a very small place. Mm. 
and that's why I think I was, uh, you know, uh, I had uh, this power to attack them and call them and look at them and call them that you are fascist. Mm. Well, no, we, we, we for years I had this imag imagination mm -hmm. of Australia, mm -hmm. and still I have this imagination. <laughs> well, th th there are many Australians, and, and of course, and there's the Australian government. But over the time that you were on Manus Island, you were sustained by many Australian writers. Like, you know, Arnold, for example, Arnold Zabel, the Australian writer. You know, you were in constant um, um, text contact, and Janet, of course, and, and, and many others. In fact. Let's, let's come back, right back to the camp. You've got a telephone, you've got an iPhone. It's extraordinary. Imagine if Solhenitsyn had had an iPhone. I mean, <laughs> this, this, this thing, you were able to transcend your circumstances. You were able to find people within Australia. And I think Janet, you were one of the, Janet was one of the first that you made contact with. Uh, yeah, actually Janet contacted us mm. because you know, when they exiled us there, so of course I didn't know anyone in Australia, you know. And so it was natural that I contact my friend in Iran and ask them to put me in touch with someone or find someone. So it was uh, not easy because each three days or four days we had to stay in the long queue and uh, just call, yeah. So what I did, uh, it, it is a long story, but finally we reached to Janet and about the smuggling phone, uh, it was not like this that I just did. Many people, the refugees, but they, we, all of us, we wanted to communicate with the world. Mm. So. And it's quite hard for me on that time because uh, I was uh, a smoker. So cigarette was uh, like a currency in the prison. So people change it with things. So I, it was hard for me to call it cigarettes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So for other people, it was easy to collect cigarettes and give it to local people and they bring them a phone. Oh, I see. So how many cigarettes for a phone? I think about 25, 30, like this. Sounds but like it a was changing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for me, you know, uh, I was not the first person who smuggled a phone in. Yeah, it took a quite long time, but finally, yeah, I exchanged my clothes and <laughs> I borrowed some cigarettes from others. Finally, I yeah. brought a cigarette in. And your first phone was confiscated. Oh, I mean that it was not a created by me, yeah. you know, that look at me uh, in a, this way that, oh, he did this. Mm. Before me, other people did that. Right. So I just followed them. But you weren't allowed to have a phone, were you? You had your yeah. yeah. So for Manus, I think it's really hard to explain. But people look at Manus without look at the history of this policy. So I think I should explain. For the for exactly three years, we were living in four prison camp, and we were absolutely separated. So, for example, we could see others in other camps, but we couldn't communicate. So, 
in this period, we were in a place worse than a prison. So we didn't have access to, so it was illegal to having a phone. And each uh, two weeks or each month, the guards attack our rooms and search our bodies, search everything, you know, and they collected many phones. So on that time, they twice they took my phone. So I had to smuggle another phone. So actually, it was like uh, uh, we were struggling with, this, with them. After three years, PNG Supreme Court ordered that keeping people in prison is illegal. And they opened the gates internally. So we meet each other after three years. After three so years. So we became one prison. You could see that each other through the Yeah, fences. yeah, we became yeah. one prison. Mm. But they opened the main gates. Mm. But still, we were not free. Because if we could go out, they arrest us. Mm. I think I should explain this just to right. understand the yeah. context. Uh, they, because it was located in a Navy base, so they put a bus there in front of the gate, and they say, you should get in this bus, uh, go to Lorongo town, which was a village in Manus. Uh, actually, it was center of the island. So we, sh we had to go there. It was 35 kilometers. You know, we had to go through the jungle and reach uh, to village spend few hours and then come back. So we were living like that for another one and a half years. Mm. So totally four and a half years. Then they, they demolished that place and relocated us to another three camps in Lorongo town. So we became free in the island. So we were living like that for another one and a half years. Mm. So in total, six years. Then they transferred us to Port Mosby right. and I ended up here. Yeah. Um, so I mean that, uh, you know, when people look at the, for example, you know, I made the movie Cho Choka, Please Tell Us the Time, mm. yeah. So this movie, people say that, how did you make this movie? How did you take shot from the local people, you know? So I made this movie when the court order. So after three years, it was legal to have fun. So after three years. It was legal. Yeah, yeah, yep. it was fine. Yeah. Yep. Um, actually, on your phone, um, you, you, well, you talked about the activists in Turkey. Um, being the Kurdish activist in, in jail in Turkey, r writing a prodigious amount. I mean, the, during the time you were on Manus, you wrote 100 articles, 30,000 words in a, in a sort of a dialogue with Arnold Zabel. Um, uh, you wrote this book, of course, uh, made a film and a play. It's quite a productive time. You may never have as productive time again. <laughs> but anyway, I just wanted to tell people about that. Um, I actually wanted you to talk about uh, time, time itself, actually. Um, the thing about prison, if you're, if you're sentenced to prison, you know how long you're going to be there. But in your circumstances, and in the circumstances facing the refugees currently and in, in uh, Nauru and the ones remaining in Manus, 
You don't know how long you're going to be there for. Is it tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? I would think that was a very difficult thing to contend with. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's why, you know, I renamed that Australian governments and media says offshore processing center. They call that place and I rename it prison. But prison is not a right word to, you know. No. We have to think about uh, another word because there is difference between prison and a prisoner and in that circumstances and our situation. In prison, any prisoner, uh, they send them to prison through a court system. So it's possible that they are innocent, or but they do it. Mm. And the court order that this person should be in prison. And they know how long they should stay in the prison. But for us, the big torture was that we were innocent and we didn't know what is our crime. Mm. And they call us illegal. If we are illegal, why you don't send us to court after six years, you know? And uh, in, uh, also, we didn't know how long we should stay in that prison, how many years. Mm. Did you, f- you must so have that is the difference, you know, and that is time, <coughs> actually time is the key concept in this systematic torture. Mm. And they torture people through this. That's why, you know, in the movie, the name of the movie is Choka, is a bird, is a native bird, I use it. Uh, Choka, please tell us the time, you know, and in the book, mm. Choka is uh, like a... Tells the time. Yeah, Choka yeah, Michael. because Choka in Manus, this bird is uh, actually known as a bird that's telling time. So the local people don't need watch. Mm. Just they, when they hear the Choka is singing, they say, mm. you know, we know what time is it, mm. you know. Mm. There must have been times when, clearly, obviously, there must have been times when you felt despair, when you lost hope. Um, how did you, how did you, kind of find hope again in these these circumstances? Was there, a, was there support from other other people, other refugees? Did you buoy each other up or support one another? Or, you know, in this system, in this prison camp, and. Uh, you know, there are uh, two kind of culture. First, uh, brotherhood culture, that when you are sick or when you need to talk with others, when you, you know, lose hope or anything, people support each other and rely on each other. In other side, there is a opposite of this, like... Uh, hate, you know, and people hate each other, you know, they tired of each other, you know, because the system designed to put people in competition, you know, when you are in a long queue and you must be in competition. For the toilet, say. For toilet, Mm. for Mm. example. Mm. Of course, Mm. you become, you know, and people after six years, people become tired of their wives and husbands. <laughs> mm. We were many men in a small place, 
and we had to you know stay in the line for years and years to small things mm. of course that create hate mm. you know and people become tired of each other so these two cultures you know was in the prison so um that's why i think when people get freedom and get off of those uh, detentions they are not interested to catch up or find each other i think yeah and just they want to forget about it uh, when you're writing um in the book you're treating time in a different a different way um, um it's a kind of a dreamt reality uh it's mythic in parts i mean it's quite a few different literary techniques are employed it's sort of reportage or journalistic initially when you're describing your journey on the boat christmas island manus island and then when you get to manus you've made your mind up you're going to make a study of this place um, and initially you're thinking about an academic study and you're thinking about engaging academics which is an extraordinary undertaking really um, and it's amazing really that you would think that 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 you would have room in your thoughts to think well i'm going to make a study of my circumstances um, can I ask you, when did you first become aware that you were writing a book or compiling a book? Or was it more a case of just sending messages on your phone and later the messages being concretized, compiled, put into a, a narrative? No, you know, uh, I think uh, at the beginning, so for two years, I was working as an unknown person because it was not safe. Uh, you mean when you wrote something, you wouldn't attach your name. Yeah, yeah, and when I, for example, I worked with Guardian. You know, we, you know, for example, we published a story about the gay people there. Mm. You know, we how the system used marijuana. You know, we did that story. For example, you know, I was working. Uh, as an unknown person, an unknown source, because I didn't feel safe with the authorities. And after two years, actually more than two years, when I became sure that I have enough supporters and I created a network around myself, like, you know, Penn International was aware mm. and, you know, many journalists. When I became sure, then I started to publish my works under my real name. Mm. But uh, for years and years, I thought that journalism language is not kind of language as I rely on, because uh, it's a kind of language that actually is a part of the uh, language of the power structure. It's a kind of language that is using uh, the concepts that created by the system, you know. Uh, for example, after, still they call that place offshore processing center, which processing is, you know, after seven years, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean that I thought that this journalism language is not capable that I share this story and, you know, actually 
share this tragedy and people still didn't have idea mm. how the system works, how life is inside the prison camp. And, the, and people couldn't feel people there, you know? And that's why I shifted my works to, you know, like cinema or literature. Mm. And literature for me always was in, you know, priority, but it took time because you cannot, when you arrive there, just start to write a novel about that place. It took a long time, years and years, that you, that uh, I thought that I understand the system because it's very complicated, you know? And still, for example, there is an Australian doctor, he was working in Nauru. After two years, I think, he resigned or they sacked him, I don't know, he has started to speak out. And now he's activist and he's challenges the mm. system. It was illegal to speak out. It was illegal. Yeah, yeah, it was illegal. Mm. So mm. if anyone from the staff, doctors, anyone worked there, guards, speak out, they, they, there was this law, and there is this law, still this law, that they put him or she in the prison for two years. Uh, section 42 of the yeah, Australian yeah. Board of Force Act. Yeah. yeah so yeah. a doctor or social worker reporting on conditions or passing on case, cases where children had been sexually abused or victims of rape, they could be jailed for two years. Yeah, yeah. So, so this doctor, yeah, yeah, this doctor started to speak out. I read one of his articles. He says that I was not aware that I am torturing people. You know, even the people who were working there, they didn't know that they are torturing people or they are a part of this systematic torture. I mean that understanding that system was so hard. So it was not easy that you understand in one year and two years and write about it, write a novel about it. It's, it was difficult. Even that person who was torturing he was not aware. He said that now I understand that I was torturing people. They're you know? a cog. They're a cog. Yeah, for example, you know, some people were there, they were case managers. So they gave them too much money and they say you every day you should go to the prison, talk with people. I just talk with people and anything they say they you write it down. And at evening you email it to us. So they didn't know that uh, they are collecting information, they're sending to the you know, system, and they are using the information to do a better planning, how to torture people, to know us. And sometimes they have particular uh, planning for individuals. Mm. You know, they had information every day, so much information the system received, and I, that's why I describe in the book yeah. about the buses and the building behind the prison, and then I talk about the parliament. Yeah. You know, so much information, they had so many information, and they do planning. Mm. And that's why the people think, I'm sorry, I should finish this with you. People think that the guards in that system, uh, the officers, they are the main part of this systematic torture. But for me, the psychologists 
the doctors and nurses who were working there and they were polite and kind. They were, they are the heart of this systematic torture and the security company, the first company that in my perspective, my understanding on this system that uh, criminal, the first criminal is IHMS company, which is the medical system. Second, we should talk about the guards and you know the security companies. So yeah. I'm, I mean that it was not easy to understand this system. Mm. That's why it took a long time. Oh, so why I start to write in literature. Yeah. You had to find a language too, and, and uh, which is what all writers have to do. Have to find a way to tell the story. Have to find the language and so on. And I wondered. I wondered if it would be an entirely different book if you had um, access to a typewriter or a laptop. Because if you're, if you're just kind of banging away on, a, on, a, um, on, an, on an iPhone, um, and it's just long, you know, language, isn't it? It's just disgorging language. Um, it sort of a, creates a kind of a stream of consciousness in itself. And a lot of the book has that kind of quality a dream uh, condition. Um, what do you think of that notion, that it would be a different, tonally different, if you had written on a laptop? No, I think on, so on, uh, on the phone, I was writing in uh, WhatsApp. So I was writing, uh, you know, but I didn't feel safe with, uh, with the authorities because anytime they, you know, it was a system. So just I send it, you know. But for example, one night I wrote one page. Another night I take that one page and, you know, copy <laughs> in the WhatsApp again and start to continue, you know. And each night I make it longer, longer, and finally become like a chapter, you know. Mm. So of course I had control of the chapters. And I was telling to Omi that, oh, here is the chapter four, here is chapter six, you know? It was not like this, just I sent some ha messages very, very and Omi put them together, yeah. you know? It yeah. was not like that. I had control on the process. Mm. And I don't know, you know, I have a laptop now. I bought a laptop, you know? Uh, two months ago, but Quite still, I didn't that. write on it. I yeah, it's I find it hard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, I used to write in phone. I know it's strange, but I used to write in WhatsApp mm. for years. Mm. So, of course, it's not easy. Mm. But and uh, interesting thing, when the book released and the journalist asked me that, how did you write it on? The, I found that question strange. I thought so. It is possible to write on WhatsApp, and later I was thinking about this, and I found a no. For people who looking at this from outside, they think it's very strange, and uh, it it is unbelievable, you know. I find it amazing, Can actually. I suggest one thing? Yes. Just um, yeah. In terms of answering this question, is that um, I think it's worth talking about the fact that when you write. You don't just write it like that. I know that you hold a 
holiday in your head. So you're walking up and down smoking beside the fence and you're writing the chapters in your head. So before it actually gets to the mobile phone, yeah. there is this incredible Memorized. thought process yeah, yeah. and construction and deconstruction mm. and reconstruction that happens. Mm. When yeah, so of course, that is a part of the, you know, writing process. Exactly, but I'm just trying to say that it's good to put across that that was... Also yeah, yeah, sure. This is Janet Galbraith, Sorry. by the <laughs> way, who... <laughs> not an interloper. <laughs> uh, no, no, thank you, Janet. No, it's a very, it's a, it's a very good point. Um, um, am I right in thinking that before you began writing, uh, you were in contact with your colleagues back in Tehran and discussing with them how to approach this project? Um, how do I write about the situation I have found myself in? Is, is that correct? You were having a sort of a text conversation with people back then? Yeah, no, I think it is a natural thing. You know, any writer, you know, someone like uh, Kafka, when he was writing, he, he used to read his work for his friends and get feedback, you know? Yes, but they were in the same room. I <laughs> know, you, 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 you know, in that circumstances, you know, I think it was natural. And now I think... People do that. Sometimes they write and send it to, you know, well, it is a, their it is girlfriend, boyfriend, and say, what, what is your feedback? Well, the they send to their fathers and they say, what, is, what do you think about this? You know, but for me, of course, you know, uh, I had uh, some good friends. Mm. So sometimes we communicate and they help me uh, with uh, actually they feeding mm. me, you know, and we were sharing our ideas and we tried to understand the system. And that's why, yeah, you know, I mentioned them in the book and uh, it was like a recognition for me. And still, you know, I think it's natural just you share ideas. And of course, those uh, friends yeah. had a big impact on me and helped me and create a way that I understand the system better, you know, because they were looking at the system from outside. Mm, that's interesting, yeah. though. You're, you're in a prison camp. You're writing in Farsi, the language of the oppressor back in Kurdistan, which is translated into English, the language of the oppressor on Manus Island. You have voices from Tehran. You have voices from Australia. There's a sense of many hands, many voices being involved, a, a sort of a gathering of um, response and insight and pulling together thoughts and so on. A very unusual way to go about compiling a, a book, I think. You know, act, uh, those people in Tehran were Kurdish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I... Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, of course, I think this book is... Of course, I wrote it in Farsi, but is uh, I think it's belong to Kurdish, uh, you know, literature, you know, tradition, because it's different. It's a mentality of uh, you know, court, you know, that I mix it. Of course, I use the you know Farsi uh, literature uh, elements and you know modern. So it's mixed, and all of this we can say it is me, you know. Mm. So that's why, you know, 
And sometimes you don't have control and you don't know later when you <coughs> read your works and uh, you, you know, or the readers understand your works in a uh, deepest way compared to you, you know. Just what I did, just I tried to use literature as a weapon mm. just to challenge this system in a political context. The whole literary ambition or undertaking is a naming exercise. It's an ex exercise in naming the condition of which you're living in. But I noticed the people, in terms of if we can call them characters, um, I suppose they are the composite identities, aren't they? But at one point, um, well, I'm just going to run through some of the names here. There's the gentle giant, the smiling youth, the father of the month old child, the man with the thick moustache, the comedian, the cunning young man, the hero, the cow, the gluttonous cow, <laughs> uh, Mason the whore. Um, when you name your characters, your people in this way, there's a sort of a sense of personality, a sense of character that comes through. Uh, and then suddenly a real name pops up, Hamid. And it's quite, quite, quite a shock. Um, we shift from this, this fictional sort of landscape into a, a real name. Hamid was, Hamid was the giant, wasn't he? He was killed. Yeah. 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 I think that he is this, you know, renaming, even I renamed the prison, you mm. know, they call it in a, the, in a different way. Mm. So what I did front of a system that actually take your name and call you by a number. So what I did, I renamed the characters in a quite a poetic way, you know, in a poetic way. Mm. And a part of it is because I think written to Kurdish culture, because the Kurdish people used to, you know, call each other by nickname, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. And a part of it written to myself that I'm like, a, uh, sometimes my brain is lazy. For example, I don't want to learn what is the name of this uh, plant. I, I don't know uh, it either. And yeah. <laughs> no, no, I do, you know, sometimes I don't, I feel I don't need to know something. Mm. I don't need to know name of people, you know. And I look at their bodies and they, and just okay. uh, in, you know, I think a part of it, because I'm not a very social person. Um, I think... <laughs> okay, I'm going to interrupt yeah, there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, there's a, I see that it's just about question time lurking. I, I didn't have a watch, so sorry, folks. Um, um, but I do want you to tell a story, um, and it's, um, it's about power. Um, there's a story, in fact... I. I don't have time to read it. I was going to read it as a passage, but I'll just quickly tell it. It's a story, a Kurdish story, I think, about sheepdogs. Occasionally a sheepdog will take on a wolf and it'll clasp onto its jugular and it will triumph. And in that moment of triumph, there's a, a sort of a self-realisation and, and it re-identifies. It re-identifies as a wolf and there's a whole shift of power. Um, and I wondered if you occasionally in your resistance in that camp felt a shift of power. 
I'm not wondering because I know there's an instance and I'm hoping you will tell everybody about the tree. And then after you've told the tree story, we'll have some questions. You remember the tree? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't remember that which context I use this uh, thing. Yeah, but uh, I mean, before that, what I wrote. But, uh, you know, of course, it's uh, power, you know, challenging the system. Mm. And, you know, when I, you know, you read this uh, to me, I think, I remind myself that I'm that dog and, you know, the system is that wolf, you know. But I think for me, you know, uh, as a person in that place, you know, I just know myself as only one person in that place. Just I challenge the system and I always try to find something to fill power in front of the system because the system established to humiliate you, you know? And literature and writing was a weapon for me, you know, and creating. Uh, for other people there, of course, we have many, you know, musicians, uh, other people, you know, I think, Anyone in Manus and Noru created a way to resist in front of the system, created a way to feel power in front of the system and to keep his identity and you know, dignity, to feel that the seal is a human and uh, you know, has respect. So there is not difference between me and others. You know? Anyone, <coughs> and some of these men, were really so smart that they, and sometimes I think that we couldn't uh, resist or we couldn't challenge this system without them because they were the first people who tried to create a trade with the local people. And uh, they started to create this way, you know, and make the cigarette as a currency, and they started to this work, and they created a huge change, you know, and someone like me, I just followed them, you know. Perhaps if I was there and by myself, I never could no, smuggle the phone. The tree, the, the tree story. Poet. The mad poet just up the tree. The Which poet? Well, you climb the tree. You climb the tree, and the guards come and go after you. Yeah, it is a long story. No, no, it's not long. <laughs> I, will, I will give you the short version. Yeah, actually, this story, we use this story for the... the yeah, yeah, we use this story for the play Manus. So this play we did with the... But this uh, isn't the play. This is, yeah, this yeah, is, it is on yeah. the plane. We did the uh, with the... Yeah, yeah, okay. No, 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 I should explain this. So this story, uh, yeah, it, it is a part of the <laughs> play that we did with the Iranian director. Her name is Nazanin. So later we brought this uh, play to Australia, and we had four performances in Adelaide. So this story, we used it. But it was uh, a very long story. <laughs> 
I, yeah, you know, uh, after three years, the system, they say they, all of the people who are with positive refugee status, it means that who are accepted as a refugee, should go to these two camps to focus on Mike, and all of people who are with negative should go to uh, Oscar and Delta. So I was happy with my place because I was with the Kurdish community. So yeah, they so they relocated everyone, and they told me that uh, you should go to. And I said. Uh, I didn't give my case to you. I didn't, you didn't process me because I didn't want, I said it is a modern slavery. I don't want to sh tell my story to PNG immigration. Finally, they said, no, you no have choice and you must leave. And I said, I don't, and they said, okay, we will bring police and we will force you. And they said, it's fine, you should do it. Uh, then I send a message to Janet, I say, uh, you know, they are going to do this. And I wrote on Facebook, I did a big claim, I say that uh, because I hear that they, they relocated everyone, just I was there. I said, I don't move. I did a claim in the Facebook and I say that I know that this company received an email from Canberra that uh, if uh, actually from Canberra they said, yeah, we thank you that you relocated all of these people without any violence and creating any news. And I did a cl big claim and they said, it's very interesting for me to hear about the next email. What is the next email tomorrow? Because I don't want to leave. I shared this with Janet, I sent a message to Janet, I said, I, yeah, I did a big claim, so I should resist, <laughs> you know, there is no way. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, so then you, you climb the tree, because... The yeah, yeah, and so I wanted, I was thinking, what should I do? So tomorrow morning, at uh, they said, at 7 o'clock, we come and force you. What should I do in front of them? So I just, I was thinking, then I saw, oh, there is a, yeah, I look at the tree. Yeah, I just climbed at morning. Yeah, so I wrote a political uh, article story and I sent it to Janet. And they say when I climb the tree, you just release it in the media or you know. So at morning they came to my room, but I was on top of the tree. <laughs> yeah, I want to use this story as a like a symbol that how we can challenge this system. So when I say system, I mean not only Manus uh, prison system, because there are many Manus prison system in you know, your society or in Australia, you know? Many Manus prison system. How we challenge this, you know? So I want to use this. Mm. I climb the tree. And they climb after you? Yes, so the people there, they didn't expect I do this because this, they look at me as a person who just write or, you know. So 
Uh, actually, that was the Kurdish part, you know? <laughs> yeah, they came and so I say I was half naked. And it is uh, symbolic that we were half naked because our bodies were subject for politics, you know? So uh, we were not in a normal place, you know? So I climbed the tree, but I decided to, I couldn't be very serious on top of the tree. It was hard. <laughs> I had to stay there for at least 10 hours, 12 hours, you know, to send my voice out. So I just started to, yeah, just f be a f like a free man. Mm. You so were outside the camp at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guards came and everyone, people were gathering and they were in shock why he's doing this. They say, calm down. And this, I was started to talk with them in a poetic way, you mm. know. No, I am, uh, you know. <laughs> but you, you made yeah. some demands of them, remember? You made yeah, yeah. Demands. So I started to read my political, uh, you know, article. And uh, so they say you should come down. And I say, no. I asked them that, yeah, bring my music. They say, what do you want? I say, bring my music. And they say, oh. <laughs> You know, you should calm down. And the immigration said, don't give him his music. And I said, uh, yeah, you should bring my music. And I said, you are a stupid man, you know. But I was telling this like an actor, you know, who is in a play. It had become performative. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was performance, exactly, performance. But I you, you shift, the power shifted, you begin to negotiate. Yeah, yeah, I say that you should give me my music, and they say no, and they say you are stupid. When a poet in a remote prison, in a remote island, is climb, climb a big tree and say I want to kill myself, he's able to kill himself because of music. You, you are stupid, you should give me my music. So I treated them, they said okay, they send me my music, so I was listening to music, and uh, so people were concerned, mm. and they said, you know, it's dangerous. Then I, when I listened to music, then I started to talk with people, like, you know, I was talking with people, and they said, you know, I am out of this prison, because the fences were shorter than you know, in fact, I was out of the system. Yeah. I was with the birds, I was with the sky, I could see the ocean, I could see many jungle, many things that other people couldn't see for years. And then you, you say you will come down on certain conditions. Yeah, so this part is interesting. After a while, they say that uh, uh, so the rain starts, so other people who were gathering there, they said, so Beirut in under rain, they started to, you know, they became half naked, and, you know, they start to stay there. Finally, at, I think about 2 o'clock, I called them and they said, I want to have negotiation with you, and 5 o'clock, and they became happy, said, okay. 
So at five o'clock, I said you should the representative of uh, the medical system, uh, immigration and security company yeah, should come here. At five o'clock they came and I said first you should uh, kick out all of the police officers. They ordered the police, they left. And the medical officer, psychologist, I asked him that you come closer, I want to talk to him. He said, you should come down, that we have negotiation. I said, you are stupid. I am, while I am here, I have power. If I come down, I lose my power. So which, mm. <laughs> which kind of psychologist you are? You asked me, <laughs> yeah, you asked me to come down and uh, have negotiation with you. If I come down, I lose my power. So I had a very, serious argument with them. Finally, I said to the medical, you should write a report that I am here not because of mental problem. I am here because of my political opinions, you know? And he said, okay, we will write this down. Then finally, um, although many things happened, but just I want to make it short. <laughs> yeah. Finally, when I wanted to come down, I asked the immigration, I said, okay, I come down, but first, you, you just I want to come down and go and have shower so you don't speak with me. Later in next few days, yeah, we can have a meeting. And he said, okay. And then I say, when I come down, you should promise me don't cut this tree. And they say, okay, we don't cut this tree. So I went uh, yeah, down and yeah, they didn't. So mm. I was quite successful. <laughs> but after a few days, they came to me and they took me to a meeting in a, like a security, very high security system. They sent me to, we had a meeting for two hours then I expected they brought me to that place, but they sent me to that place they wanted. <laughs> you know, the place that I, wa I didn't want to go. Right. When I arrived there, just they kicked me out. They sent me. Um, I had lunch, and I started hunger strike. But first I had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. After half an hour, yeah, yeah, there was a big news like a bomb that mm. the court ordered that keeping people in that place is illegal. Mm. Yeah. So just that was like on the next day, about hunger it? strike, yeah. 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 Okay. Thank, thank you. you. I thank told you, you it's a long story. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. So yeah, I'm sorry. I should say this. <laughs> so I told this story. It's not only for. You know, I want to say that in that circumstances, you know, it's uh, that thing that you mentioned, power, you know, that people try to challenge the system even for one day, even for one hour, even for one second. And actually this kind of resistance give you power to survive and if we wouldn't do this kind of thing, we wouldn't survive. Oh, so so I understand it in this way. So yeah. it's not 
and sustaining yeah, yeah. in all sorts of ways. Look, um, we've got time for a couple. We've got no time for questions. We have no time. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, look. Well, I, thank you, everybody, for coming along, and especially Baruch. Thank you very much. It's, thank it's you. quite extraordinary that you're able to be thank here. You. So, thank you.